Hello. Welcome to Another Finger. This is a podcast about bringing mindful awareness off of the cushion and into our daily lives. I recommend committing to a daily meditation practice for better physical and mental health. It is amazing what we can learn about ourselves when we are still. Only when still does the water become clear. Well, here we are again. In the last episode, I promised you a juicy scoop. I explained why it has been so difficult for me to find the time to write until lately, and I used my caring for Junebug as my primary excuse. But I hinted at the fact that much of the difficulty has been self-imposed. My choices likely played a larger role in my inconsistency. I also mentioned how being retired gives me the opportunity to open up a little more and to discuss some issues I've been dealing with over the course of my adult life. So here it is. I was a sophomore in high school when I met the love of my life. From the first time I inhaled her fragrance, I was captivated. She made me feel like I had never felt before, made me think in ways I didn't know were possible. She made time stand still. Though our first encounter was just a fling, we found one another periodically over the years and went steady on and off over my lifetime. As with making any choice in life, you sacrifice other options by default. For better or for worse, I chose to be with her when the times were good and was drawn to her when the times weren't so good. I spent much of my adult life with her, letting her take me wherever she would, sometimes sacrificing other interests and time with friends and family. She has taught me a lot about myself, about my connection to others and to nature. She has encouraged me to look deeply into the purpose of life and to question much of what we take for granted. I can't really articulate just how important she has been in my life. I certainly wouldn't be who I am today without her influence. But at this point in my life, we can no longer go steady. There just isn't enough room for her to be involved as much as she has been throughout my life. This is a bit of our story. I've been flirting with an addiction to marijuana for most of my life, at least since the first time I tried it when I was 15 years old, when, one minute after smoking, I was suddenly shuttled into a new mind and body. Space and time became something fluid and nonlinear. It was an entirely new way of perceiving the world. It was, indeed, my first drug-induced peak experience, of which I've had many, and this possibility is what seems to draw me back in time after time, the potential for mind expansion. I understand this isn't the worst drug to have addiction problems with, and I even hesitate using those words, drug and addiction, but that's how it feels to me when I decide to quit and my body rejects that decision in various ways. My mind as well is always making excuses for why I should continue the habit or revive it yet again. Luckily, this habit has not been steady throughout these years. In fact, I've successfully stayed sober for years at a time over the course of my adult life, but I've not strung together more than six months or so at a time over the last half dozen years. My relationship with cannabis has been reciprocal to a certain degree, meaning it hasn't been all bad. I have learned a lot from my time smoking pot, 
more so lately probably due to my on-again, off-again relationship with it, but I now believe the perceived benefits are significantly outweighed by the harms associated with a daily habit. At the time this episode is released, I will have been sober for seven challenging yet hopeful weeks. My most recent foray back into Stonerland began a day or two after my back went out in late July, maybe ten days before I recorded that three years episode. You can hear my clouded mind if you listen close enough. I justified breaking a months-long sobriety because I was in such pain and convinced myself that only pot would do the trick. These are the types of half-truths I've been applying for years, but this time I thought I really had a good excuse. I mean, I did have a great excuse. I could barely move. It was half true in the sense that it was not the only option. Does marijuana ease pain? Yes, but only in the sense that it distracts one's attention away from the pain, at least temporarily. Did I know this beforehand? Absolutely. Truth is, when I really examined my motivation, I just wanted to get high again and wanted permission to do so. Wanting to have a completely clean system by the time Jay gave birth, I had been sober since late April of this year. My goal was complete presence during this time, and I was mostly successful. I had all the positive intentions and motivations in the world to be sober, not only for my child's birth, but to be completely present with her always, especially in these early months. But all of this was not enough to keep me sober, That is how deep this dependence goes. I could have all the righteous motivations in the world, indeed the inevitability of a new child, a life-changing event, which would no doubt be altered by whatever mindset I approached it with, and I still chose weed. Even knowing what I know about how my body reacts when I do quit, I still chose weed. It's crazy. I feel like a total dunce, which is what you become if you consume enough of this stuff, at least temporarily. I probably smoked every day, or evening rather, for about two weeks after that back injury. What I call a daily habit would be more accurately described as an evening habit. Though we had a drug-free policy at work, which I was breaking, I was never stoned at work. I just want to be clear on that. I had too much pride in my work and the company to show up stoned. So the general rule was nights and weekends only. At least that's how it was until I retired in mid-September. To celebrate retirement, I obtained cannabis in the form of a vape pen. This made smoking so simple, odorless, and absolutely convenient. I was free to smoke virtually anywhere at all hours of the day and evening, leaving almost no trace. I accepted this challenge with gusto. I did this in secret, behind Jay's back, because she didn't want it in the house, around the child, or for me to be intoxicated while caring for the little one. In theory, I agreed with all of this, yet I couldn't find the motivation to peel myself away. The more I consumed, the more I needed. Because I was always smoking, there came a point where I had a hard time noticing if I were high or not. So I took it a step further and obtained actual cannabis flower, or buds, to put to flame and inhale. 
my preferred method. This forced me to smoke at obscure times, like after Jay and Junebug were asleep, in the middle of the night, or in the early morning before either were awake, or whenever Jay slipped out on a walk or hike or grocery store visit. It was all-consuming and completely pointless. My life revolved around when I could next creep down into my basement where my recording equipment had been slid aside to make room for my bong and other accoutrements to smoke. So you can see why I would never have time to write or record or even meditate. I literally spent every free minute stoned or trying to figure out how to get there. Let me say this. There is nothing fun about getting high in secret. There is almost nothing worse than immediately trying to hide all evidence of it. At that point, it's completely lost any possibility to help me achieve a peak experience and completely impossible to just sit and enjoy. So why did I continue this day after day? As I mentioned before, what would draw me back in away from sobriety was the desire to experience altered consciousness with the aim of reaching higher levels of self-awareness and interconnectivity and exploring the inner workings of the mind. That desire became a daily need to reach a new baseline normal. It's a slippery slope. Almost all drugs can morph this way, even prescription drugs, possibly more so. Peak experiences stand out in contrast to normal daily life. If those normal days are spent intoxicated, there is nowhere to go from there, and the peaks are no longer possible. And this is the problem with peak experiences. You want to permanently exist in them, so you're always trying to get back to it, though it's absolutely impossible to recreate a single one. Not a chance at all if you don't have something to contrast it with, such as normal, regular, old, mundane sobriety in this case. In the week before I most recently quit, I smoked a half ounce of marijuana alone in what I thought was secret until I confessed my guilt to Jay. She'd known that I had been smoking, though she didn't know to what degree and chose not to say anything to me. I had no chance of experiencing anything extraordinary during this time because I was existing in an already paranoid and intoxicated state, and the only way to experience something new was to again achieve a certain level of sobriety. I knew a majority of my problems, my crumbling health, my ability, or lack thereof, to complete day-to-day tasks, my short attention span, my general sense of overwhelm would most likely work themselves out with sobriety. But it is not a switch that can just be flipped. It's going to get much, much worse the moment I decide to get sober. This is why it becomes such a difficult calculation to make. On one hand, there is a new normal with consistent use. You figure out how to work within your self-imposed limitations that come with constant intoxication. On the other hand, the road to recovery is 90% miserable. Not just for me, but for everyone around me. Honesty notwithstanding, this is why I had to tell Jay about my secret habit, because I needed her help, understanding, and patience as I began to detox. 
Without fail, each time I quit, I experience intense physical withdrawals, which include intermittent palm sweats, constantly oscillating body temperatures, day sweats which turn into chills, night sweats, inability to sleep because I'm no longer shutting down my brain at night while lying in sweat-soaked sheets, extreme irritability due to the lack of sleep. This is just to name a few that readily come to mind. So a decision needed to be made. Do I just continue as if nothing is going on? Or do I subject my little family to all of this chaos for an indefinite period of time? It could be two weeks or more. One of my first detoxing periods lasted three months. Quite honestly, one of the toughest stretches of my life. I was also grieving the loss of a pet cat during that time, so I was quite a mess. As I was faced with all of this darkness soon to envelop me, I knew what I needed to do. Be mindful in my framing. That is to simply remember that all of those things are certainly coming my way and doing my best not to be taken in by them. Knowing the challenges will come is probably the first step toward overcoming them. I also chose to focus on the 10% of benefits that would surely come my way. Each day brings a new level of mental clarity. Each night sweat is more toxins leaving the body. The sweatier, the better. Just a bit closer to the goal of a clear and sober mind. One of the clearest and soonest indications that things are going well is my weight. I usually hover around 170 pounds. But when I get into a daily habit, I tend to pack on upwards of 20 pounds within a week or two. For instance, before I quit in October, I weighed as much as 188.2 pounds. Within days of quitting, I dropped to 170.2. You might determine that this is munchy weight, but it is not that entirely. It's mostly water weight. My legs, ankles, and feet swell up, as does my face. My bloated and protruding belly also makes an appearance. It's just awful walking around in this tight skin suit, which makes me not want to do anything physical at all. But all of this changes quite rapidly once I dedicate myself to sobriety. The weight falls off just as fast as it goes on, automatically. My doctor has no clues why this happens. He's actually written prescriptions for furosemide, a water pill, twice, to help speed up the water evacuation process. I did not go that route this time because I wanted to do it as much by myself as possible, as clean as possible. I needed this to be as hard or as easy as it would be without medicinal intervention. It has been very difficult. I'm not as kind to Jay as I'd like to be. I'm still not sleeping great, partly due to Junebug's current sleeping patterns, which can cause quite the ripple effect in the household. But the night sweats are finally gone. The cravings are gone. I'm experiencing more mental clarity each day. I have more energy to expend with the baby. I am writing. I am meditating. I am handling the day-to-day stuff much better now. It's better every day. The inner critic is slinking back into the darkness, and I'm through the worst of it. But I have questions, and I'm searching for answers. Why? For instance, is this time different than every other time? 
Why will it stick this time? Will it stick? How will I commit to being clean? Am I really prepared to write off marijuana for good forever? I don't yet have good answers for these questions. This time feels different because the stakes are higher than ever. Over the years, my usage has become more interesting when done in conjunction with my meditation practice. Yet that benefit is almost completely sucked dry with a daily habit. So if I do wish to gain something from marijuana in the future, I cannot be in the grips of habitual abuse today. Which is to say that I'm not ready to completely abstain because I believe there is something of value in very occasional and deliberate use. So, I will place marijuana in a proverbial jar on a shelf next to previously opened jars of psilocybin, ayahuasca, MDMA, and LSD, along with a few others I have yet to open. That is to say, I will place it next to other conscious-altering substances which are usually best ingested with a bit of love and care with ceremony. Each one of these are greatly enhanced by set and setting, and marijuana is no different. I have successfully used each of these substances without making a habit out of it, and I intend to do the same with cannabis moving forward. I'm smart enough to know that writing it off altogether only adds to its allure, tempting me further to break my commitment to abstain. This time, I'm not committing to a life devoid of pot. Instead, I'm attempting to reclassify it in my mind as something which may or may not be taken when the set and setting are ideal. There have been a few times within the last four or five years where I have experienced how powerful marijuana can be if these two criteria, set and setting, are perfect, and I experienced insights which are not common to a sober mind. I'll likely share those stories in the future because they have absolutely shaped my view of life. So that's where I stand now. I'm feeling good, keeping myself occupied with the baby and a few of my other interests. So far, things are going quite well. Please, if you have any advice for me, or would like to share a similar story that might help me, please email me. Now, at the end of the last episode, I mentioned a launch of something that I'm going to try. So here it is. Several weeks ago, I began to string up mala to be used in conjunction with meditation as well as use during our practice at the Tibetan Buddhist temple. After shopping around for a pre-made mala, I couldn't find what I had in mind, so I decided to make one for myself. I was initially just going to string one up for myself, making it exactly as I wanted, but there are so many gorgeous beads out there that I ended up making ten of them. As of now, only eight are available, so I'm going to attempt a sort of public radio-style fundraising campaign. I've decided that I'm going to give these away as a thank-you gift for your donations moving forward. My website, anotherfinger.com, now has a store tab where these mala can be found. Each one has a donation value attached to it based on the cost and quality of the materials. I will soon include some other handmade items as well, such as necklaces and bracelets, for a wider range of donation options. All items will be one-of-a-kind and handmade and designed by me. I am also trying to figure out how to do custom mala on the site, But until then, 
You may email me with your requests. I just need up to four details. Main bead choice and size, say 10 millimeter, 8 millimeter, 6 millimeter. An accent or counter bead choice and the color of cord that you would like. And then leave the rest up to me. I can find just about any stone in bead form and cord colors are pretty plentiful as well. As with a public radio fund drive, your donation will cover the cost of the mala, plus help me cover the cost of the website and podcast host site. Unlike the canvas tote or coffee mug that you get from your public radio station donation, these items are designed and handmade by me. You also may donate and choose not to receive any gift by simply clicking the donate button on the site. Aside from being beautiful, Mala are a wonderful way to count your in-and-out breaths or mantras without verbalizing numbers, therefore keeping your mind free of conceptualization. As you cycle through each bead with an in-and-out breath or after each recitation of a mantra, the Mala counts for you. But they're also cool just to wear or put on display somewhere. Anyway, I think they're really pretty. So check out the website www.anotherfinger.com and check the store tab and as I mentioned before feel free to email me at support at anotherfinger.com if you've donated recently and you would like a mala I will honor your donation just send me an email so that's about it thank you so much for listening I really do appreciate your time. I know it is extremely valuable and quite limited. So thank you. Until next time, enjoy.